Hello everyone, my name is Amber Johnson and welcome to the Public Health Me podcast. This podcast will explore a gamut of topics from COVID-19 and immunity to social determinants of health and health equity to mental health. The goal of this podcast is to answer the questions of those in the general public and also get people that are inquisitive about the field of public health excited about the topics that we have to discuss in the fields of public health and medicine alike. We are so delighted that you all are here to join us on this journey of the Public Health Me podcast. We would like to thank you so much for your support of this podcast, and we hope that you enjoy. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Public Health Me podcast. I'm very excited to have some amazing guests with me here today, Dr. Stacey Dillon and Maggie Hawkins. They are amazing individuals in their respective fields, just as individuals in general, and I'm so glad to know them. I'm going to toss it over to Dr. Dillon first to introduce herself. Hi, I'm Dr. Stacey Dillon. Thanks so much for having me. I'm a physician. My focus is primarily gynecology, family planning, uh, reproductive and sexual health, and I'm an associate medical director at Planned Parenthood. Hi, I'm Maggie Hawkins, and I am an out, been out in the LGBTQ community for many years. A good deal of work working with LGBTQ organizations in my region. I'm based in Southern California, former uh, worked with Planned Parenthood as well many years ago. So, Thank you both so much for all of the work that you do and for being here to talk about such a pertinent topic today. The theme of our episode today is LGBTQ plus health and lessons learned. Our overarching question for today's episode is how can we work to make LGBTQ plus health more equitable for all. I know that we've seen so many things happening in today's society, bills being passed, such as the one in Florida, don't say gay. And we're creating a society where it's becoming increasingly difficult to speak your truth and to live in your truth. And I think that we have to, in medicine and in public health, create a space that is safe for our patients and safe for the people around us to be able to thrive, whether that's mentally, physically, or emotionally. And I think that when we get to a better place where we are more accepting of individuals and accepting of how they feel about various things and how they feel about the world, I think that we will get to a better place of understanding, not only in public health, but in medicine, because there's a lot of things that have happened in medicine. You know, we can talk about the HIV AIDS epidemic in the 80s. There was a whole documentary. There's been several documentaries on it. And one of the most prominent ones that I remember is 5B, where they talked about the ward that was full of HIV and AIDS patients that people didn't want to take care of. And people were ostracized in society for having HIV, having AIDS, taking care of patients that had HIV and AIDS, because it was something that a lot of people didn't know how people were, how it's being transmitted, how you were able to kind of spread it to others. And I think that that creates a huge basis for how our healthcare system has treated people that are in the LGBTQ plus community. And it's bled into what we're doing today And I think that we have to stop some of these practices that are just not working, such as when they recently lifted the ban on people, on um, gay individuals being able to give blood 
Like how in the world was this still a thing or thing whatsoever? But because of what happened in the eighties and this whole trauma mentality that people created in society and in medicine, it created a huge issue for people moving forward. And this, this level of stigma, and this is taboo. And I think that we really need to be able to move past that. So going into our first topic, I really want to talk about the LGBTQ plus health disparities and how that has worked and how things have persisted since the 20th century. Physicians don't necessarily receive a lot of training, like the necessary knowledge and understanding of people with different sexuality or different gender identities. And so the fact that not a lot of medical providers have that sort of training often leads LGBTQ people to have a level of mistrust in the medical system and they have anxiety around seeking care. From a medical perspective in the LGBTQ community, there's sometimes higher risk of HIV and other STIs, especially among communities of color. There are higher rates of victimization when you feel like you can't reach out to your healthcare providers, mental health issues, suicide, particularly in the transgender community. Overall, LGBTQ people are less likely to even have health insurance. So to be able to access healthcare if they wanted to. And, you know, there's, there's systemically, there are so many issues that LGBTQ people face, you know, in addition to health insurance, things like employing, employment, housing, you know, bullying in schools, you know, now we know with the recent Florida don't say gay bill, we're in a scenario where not only are teachers unable to even speak about different sexualities, but a grotesque twist that I couldn't have thought of myself, teachers are supposed to report to parents if they suspect that kids in school are gay even if they know that student, that child would be at risk of abuse at home. There's a number of challenges in that, in the healthcare system when it comes to being an LGBTQ person. Maggie, I don't know if you wanted to speak more to it. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I would agree with all of that. I, I think it really goes back to just finding care, just getting the care we need. So for example, I think it's the Texas law around transgender young people getting gender affirming care that's being considered criminal on their parents' part, right? So um, that's just getting the basic care and then getting care that's, you know, I've had personal experiences and lots of people that have had different experiences with even well-meaning providers that really, they they weren't sure how to ask the basic questions. Mm -hmm. And I, I think you know, to think about the bigger picture, it's just like for all of us, just learning how to ask each other questions about, and, you know, for example, like I go by pronouns, she, her, and some people are like, what's with all the pronoun stuff? And there's, there's power in our language. There's power in how we identify ourselves. We see that with so many marginalized communities in their liberation struggle, that taking back of how you identify and how you want to be seen in the world. And so I think that that's, that's a critical piece of what we now call the LGBTQ community is about, is just taking that identity back and being powerful in that. There are so many health disparities. And I think one of the things too, though, we can't forget that as LGBTQ people, we also experience some of the same health issues that other people do, right? So for example, breast cancer, right? Things like other female cancers, like uterine cancer, cervical cancer, especially for some lesbian women, there's a feeling that, oh, I'm not sexually active with men. 
I don't need to get pap smears, right? So those kinds of things that are still out there and still prevalent. You know, I get concerned about things like with increased hormone use, for example, with the transgender population, what kind of health effects is associated with the hormone use and are they getting appropriate care? Because as Dr. Stacy said, there's a, a lot of people that don't have health care. I know during COVID, this is something out of the Williams Institute at UCLA, I mean, the LGBTQ population suffered greater unemployment because there's a, a good number of people that are working in industries that have to shut down and some of the other issues that come with that, including around healthcare and access to healthcare. Yeah. I think the, you know, accessing healthcare and using proper pronouns is a really important thing. And so I have this memory that really haunts me from when I was, um, I think I was in residency or medical school and the hospital that I worked at didn't ask for preferred pronouns or preferred names. So my job was to go and take a history from this patient. And when I called out the patient's name, I used the patient's dead name. And when I went over to the patient, the patient was very, very upset, very angry and left outraged that I had used that name. And then, you know, later we got a, a critical blood level back for that patient. And I, you know, wasn't, we tried to reach out to the patient and wasn't able to. And that, that's just an example of a time that really, really haunts me about how that can be to a person who's stressed out and feels unsafe already to be in a scary place like an ER and, and have a name that feels a name use that feels hurtful yeah. and objectionable to them. And so, you know, I work for an organization that is great because we uh, ask every patient, you know, unfortunately the name change process is hard for a lot of our transgender patients. And so they'll have to continue to use the ID or driver's license or insurance card that has their dead name on it. But we do our best to ask for preferred pronouns and preferred names so that we can create a space where patients feel comfortable. And um, unfortunately, not many clinics do that. It's, it's very rare. And that's something that should be something that's yeah. across the board. You know, every it should be part of a history and physical intake. They should be teaching it at medical schools. Every hospital should absolutely have that. And I think it's a slow change happening, but it's not happening quickly enough. So that's just like one, one right. instance of the first thing we ask, what's your name? to get in the door, you're not going to have, you know, people trusting their providers to give them information when we can't even get their name right. So. Yeah. I mean, thank you for saying that. You know, the other thing that that jumps to mind is an experience. I I used to be the director of an LGBTQ, it's like a youth drop-in program in the community of San Bernardino. And so I had a whole host of young people that I was their maid family member, right? So, and one of those young people, unfortunately, had a drug overdose and ended up in the ER. And so, of course, her network, and she was transgender, her network called me to see if I could help. And with HIPAA, at a really difficult time with the doctors, because I wasn't birth family, and then the whole issue of her gender expression came up because she, you know, unfortunately had not been able to do any kind of legal paperwork changes. And so and it happened to be a hospital that was in the Catholic hospital system. So it was, I mean, it was literally life-threatening for her. And fortunately, we were able to find a few doctors that you know, tried to do the best workarounds they could and allowed, you know, her support people. Her birth mother basically come in, came in, saw that she was still alive and left and left her there. 
So, I mean, this is this is the kind of, I think that's the thing too, the level of abuse that I've seen just society in general. And I think that's what these makes these most recent laws so deeply painful. You know, we know all the suicide stats and we know what that looks like, but on a day-to-day -day basis, just the demoralizing, demoralizing things that happen for I think, um, people. Yeah, I think for as a, as a queer person, you know, we talk very much about our concept of chosen family, you know, that the family that we have around us are the people who love us and support us for, you know, the people that we are. And that for many people, for many queer people, their biologic families, you know, have in many ways rejected them or don't support them. So when it comes to these really important things like healthcare decisions, we don't really have this infrastructure that can help support yes. that. And, and, you know, that's something that helping things like picking a healthcare proxy or a living will, you know, if Thank queer you. people have access to those sorts of legal services that some medical clinics can provide, it's, it's really, really helpful and really important. And it's yet another reason to provide these access to these sorts of legal and medical services to queer people, because we live in the society that's entirely based yes. on heteronormativity and a single family structure that's very, yes. very different from what most queer people, including myself, you know, the ways that we live our lives. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's very, it's not supportive and it's not conducive to seeking care because to go back to some of your initial comments, there has been a long history of abuses in the, with the medical system and queer folk. Okay, so from medical experimentation to things like in some countries, like med medical castration was considered an appropriate treatment for homosexuality. Obviously, we've also heard about all the mental health using lobotomies to try to cure people. So that, you know, when we talk about community trauma, it definitely manifests itself in healthcare and people know those stories, you know, and are concerned about them as well as experiences and stories. And, you know, it makes it difficult. And I think for me being in public health, to go back to some of your initial comments, I feel like this is a great place for us to open doors and create those discussions and to work together with people that have clinical training you know, be more accepting and inclusive. Yeah. And it's back to, you know, back to what you had mentioned earlier, Amber, about just the way that, you know, people were treating during the HIV and AIDS crisis in the eighties, that it was considered a gay plague. And, you know, the people who attempted to seek care for it were often marginalized or told that they were in some way responsible for their condition that lingers, you know, that lasts through, you know, people who are alive during it and passes through generations. And so there's a really valid reasons for queer people to be mistrustful of the of the broader medical community and and government health systems that you know should be doing a better job at supporting them. Yeah, I think it's interesting. People that were younger with COVID nineteen were like, "Oh, we've never been through a plague or a pandemic like this." And I'm like, "Well, I'm old enough. I'm of the generation where I had lost people in my life to HIV." And, and I still have people in my life that are living with HIV, but it's a vastly different thing than what happened 40 years ago when mm -hmm. literally people died within a few months. 
and young people, people that were otherwise very healthy and vibrant in the middle of life, and they just disappeared. Because this last year was the 40th anniversary of when CDC acknowledged the first case of what we now know as HIV. And I think back, and we have learned a lot of lessons that have actually helped us as a society with COVID, Mm -hmm. down to the very medications uh, that are being used for the vaccines right. are really, you know, we're tested mm-hmm. with HIV, you know, but just uh, so many things in terms of how to, you know, how quickly the government pivoted around marginalized communities mm-hmm. and looking at this whole aspect of having trusted messengers within communities. That all of that really comes from a period in time when people were dying, they weren't being listened to. And they got really loud and organized and people like Anthony Fauci remember that because he was right. at the heart of that, you know, and really learned a lot in terms of how to implement, even as imperfect as the COVID response was. Mm-hmm. I feel that there were some aspects of it that were really informed by um, the pain in the history that the LGBT community went through in those early days of AIDS. Paxlovid is another medication that's a booster for to, to amplify that dose of the antiviral yes. as ritonavir. Which Antivirals, right. In, yeah, yes. used in HIV. You know, it's interesting yes. what you said about the pandemic. One thing I've been thinking as a slightly more, a more depressing <laughs> take on <laughs> the, on the COVID response is I think that um, there's been this shift lately to this idea that the pandemic is over. Oh, well, there yes. are still, there are still people dying. I mean, in the same number, yes. you know, a thousand, right at the time of this reporting right. around a thousand a day, but you know, right. those people, we don't think about them so much, you know, it's okay. That's an expendable number so that we can, you know, get to our lives right. and, and forget about this sort of thing. And really the attempt to do that in the HIV and AIDS crisis in the eighties to say that this is a gay person's disease. I'm, I'm protected yeah. from it. Doesn't, it doesn't matter to me. I don't care about gay people. Yeah you know, ultimately came, came back to bite all of us, you know, as it obviously yes. is not just specific to gay people spread throughout the world, you know, which ways in which we've approached COVID globally is also similar to the way in which we've yes. uh, approached HIV and AIDS globally, that it's fine for that disease to spread unchecked in the rest of the world. It doesn't affect right. us here. And, you know, we certainly now see the flaws of it, particularly when it comes to a respiratory virus that travels around the world. But I, I, I sometimes yeah. feel sad that, that we didn't learn more lessons that we could have learned from the HIV and AIDS crisis that continue to be ongoing, you know, that we try to sweep under the rug at this time and, and, you know, look at that sort of, I wish we would learn those public health lessons a little bit better. Yeah, those are, that's, that's a really, really good point because you're right. And how this is kind of flowing forward. I mean, AIDS is still very much alive and well, Mm -hmm. particularly in certain areas of the world. And, and this whole like, well, we're just going to move on now. We're done. Mm-hmm. We're done with this. That yeah. short attention span. Unfortunately, I don't feel like we've learned anything there. And one thing I really think is interesting is that I think in the time that I that I entered into medical school, I was like, well, there's you know nobody really dies of AIDS anymore. We have medications for it. That was an understanding that I had. And then you know I w- and then when I ended up working in hospitals in New York City, I you know saw people dying of AIDS all the time, and it really showed me that despite having the best medications and, you know, access to those medications, there's so many socioeconomic factors and distrust of the healthcare system for, um, for so many reasons, the ways in which like, 
the system has completely failed people. They don't get access to those medications. And so it's, it's a really sad thing to, to, to see and to watch and something we need to do a lot better on. You both made excellent points when you talked about how a lot in the system has not changed in the last 40 years that we haven't taken a lot of lessons learned and applied those to modern day society and said, hey, this is what happened before. We don't want to repeat some of the same mistakes, but unfortunately we're in a space where we have some of the same people still in Congress, still in positions of authority that have perpetuated these narratives that have just been trickled down and constantly perpetuated throughout our modern history. And I think a lot of it is going to start with policy change and making sure that these policies are rock solid, that there are not going to be changes in the future, such as bills that are like, don't say gay, that people can actually be able to access healthcare in the way that they need to be, feel safe within their own homes or within their own schools or with a trusted individual, social worker, et cetera, or healthcare provider. I think we're getting to a place where people are so afraid even to talk to their doctors about things that may be going on for fear of what may happen to them when it comes to these repercussions, such as the transgender bill that's happening in Texas at this time, where people are literally being reported as being abusers as parents. If you have a child that is going through the process of becoming um, a transgender individual or that may be transgender. And I think that that creates a major health disparity for us because people are not going to want to go to trusted, seemingly trusted individuals in healthcare, people that are in social work, et cetera, because they feel like they cannot speak to these people openly without fear of being arrested, without fear of fines or whatever repercussion may come in the end. And I think that that's a huge issue for us moving forward, trying to feel like we can get a population back that's still hanging by a thread in terms of trusting healthcare professionals, in terms of actually receiving treatment for any disease. It doesn't, just because you are a part of the LGBTQ community does not mean that you're nullified from having certain diseases. In a lot of cases, it increases your risk because people are not practicing, you know, sexual safety, for lack of better words. People are not- just your your exposure, I'm sorry. Amber, no, like absolutely. with uh, tobacco, tobacco use is a really good example. Mm-hmm. And I know that it, at least here in California, but I know nationwide, a lot of work's been done in that area. So yeah, mm-hmm. there's a, our exposures are related to all the circumstances going on in our lives. So right. So, yeah. <laughs> often, yeah. And often like queer individuals don't have access to like safe schools, housing, recreational facilities, like activities, safe meeting places, all that stuff in addition to health services that contribute to all those greater issues. I'm glad that you said that, Dr. Jalen, about safe access to housing. If you think about it, there's a lot of individuals that identify as queer or gay that may have been removed from their homes because their families don't believe in their, their lifestyle that they've chosen, which creates another issue with their social determinants of health, with health disparities, because people are often going to be homeless, living on the street from couch to couch. People may be using recreational drugs, possibly going into prostitution or various other things because of their their circumstances have changed. They may have gone from living in a middle-class 
lifestyle or wherever they came from to having this disparity in terms of their their housing yeah i think a couple things one is there is this stereotype right that lgbtq families have wealth which the vast majority of us do not right and so i think that there is that predominant stereotype out there and particularly when you're talking about like woman-headed households with children because a great many of us are also raising children sometimes family members children you're not talking about a lot of wealth overall um so there's there really is that and i forget there was something else i wanted to jump in and say and it'll come back to me <laughs> so sorry <laughs> A really good point though, Maggie, because you think about young adults that are being raised by other family members that become their chosen family in a sense. They may not be, you know, blood relatives or they may be extended family. People, I think that there's a lot in that space to not only educate the young adult, but also to educate the family members that are housing these individuals or that are becoming the support network for these individuals. And I think that that brings us into our next topic where we want to make sure that we are working with LGBTQ youth and that we are not ostracizing them in society, making them feel like they cannot speak their truth, making them feel like they're alone in in these instances. And we've gotten a lot better with being more open and accepting, but I think we have a long way to go in terms of educating young adults, in terms of educating practitioners regarding the overall health and the well-being of young adults that are LGBTQ. Yeah, I mean, I think we know that like tolerance is not enough. You know, I think that there's the combination that LGBTQ individuals face, you know, the the combination of anti-transgender bias or homophobia mixed with, you know, these intersections of racism and, and sexism and housing issues and access to healthcare, like these intersections can be lethal. And I think that we have to do significantly more. You know, we have incredibly high suicide rates of amongst LGBTQ individuals, uh, particularly among transgender individuals who suffer so much in our society. In addition to suicide, assault, murder, you know, the, the, number of transgender people who are murdered, particularly transgender people of color, is horrifying to think about. And we need to do so much more as a society to be inclusive and accepting and supportive. And it's really sad to me to see that that some states are choosing to go in the absolute opposite direction. Don't want to mince words that the Texas bill will lead to death for people. It will lead to them being harmed either by other people or the for the shame that they're made to feel unfairly. You know, when I think about the suicide rates amongst teenagers, it, it, it keeps me awake at night. It's, it's really, really horrifying to think about. Yeah, it, it really is. And I think that, you know, Amber, when you were talking about housing earlier, a, a large portion of homelessness amongst particularly LGBTQ youth has mm-hmm. to do with not being accepted by their families and being thrown out. Unfortunately, that's still happening. So I think as a society, you know, we think that, oh, we're so much more open right now. But I think if we really listen to our young people, they're still experiencing some of these levels of discrimination and and it can be deadly. I think your point, Dr. Dillon, is really important that, you know, this isn't just, you know, this, this is a life or death matter. 
it really is and, and we need to think of it that way our house is on fire <laughs> to to uh yeah. paraphrase the very bright talented young person right but i i think we need to think of it that way and i feel like th this latest wave of legislation so of course this is not the first time in our history as humans that this has happened and the queer folk have been scapegoated throughout history and I, I think that's important that we keep a perspective on that. And mm -hmm. that's exactly what it is. It's scapegoating. It's finding mm -hmm. a population that people in the majority feel are derided, that they don't have power, and therefore we're going to go after them. And that's, that's really how I feel about these latest kind of crazy discussions around transgender youth, whether it's sports, whether it's bathrooms, whether it's just seeking gender affirming care, all of that is around scapegoating a very vulnerable class of youth. You know, on the flip side of that, because I know we've been talking a lot about some of these negative health outcomes, but we also know that with teens, when they have support of family members and friends, when they are accepted by family members and friends and other people that, that care for them, that they, they can be okay, that they can mm -hmm. have incredibly very well-adjusted lives and go on and be the people that they're supposed to be in the world. And so really isn't so much the virtue of them being identifying as LGBTQ, but it's more the issue of how the non-acceptance of who they are that's creating all these problems. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think, I think that's um, what's so horrifying about the Texas bill, which essentially reports a parent reports parents who are supporting of their transgender yes. children and getting yes. them gender affirming care essentially accuses yes. the parents of abuse. My experience in treating these patients is that transgender affirming care is life-saving care. You know, as a cisgender person, you know, my transgender patients have explained to me what it feels like to essentially wake up in the morning in the wrong body and how much the ability to provide transgender affirming care has made a difference and a change in their life. So to think about the experiences of parents who love and support them and want to help them get that care when they need it, having the state um, interfere, you know, as usual, anytime you put a politician in the exam room, it's a very, very bad idea. And one of, one of the worst bills that I've read that hasn't passed yet, and will probably face some federal challenges is Idaho, where they've uh, put up a bill that states that not only can parents not get transgender affirming care for their children, but they will also be arrested if they attempt to leave the state to get care for their children. And I just, I, I can't imagine it. And I think that in, you know, in a year, in a, the past two years during, you know, global pandemic, so much loss of life, so many challenges in people's lives, it's so abundantly clear to create a non-issue, just like Maggie said, a look over here, this is the thing to scapegoat as the source of all your problems. It's just yeah. at the cost, it's literally at the cost of kids' lives and it's, it's you know, just so deeply upsetting. Yeah, it really is disgusting when it comes down to it. I think what all these things we're talking about though speak to the larger need for federal legislation protecting mm -hmm. LGBTQ people. You know, in the past, 
the federal government has stepped in when people's civil rights are being violated. And I feel like th this is yet one more time where that legislation, that Equality Act is really, really needed to really stave off all of these little effort. I mean, not little efforts, but all of these individual efforts that are going on in these states. And I think, you know, we can't deceive ourselves either that these are not separate efforts. These are definitely very well-coordinated efforts by a particular, you know, very conservative element that is using this as a distraction for other things going on. I do really feel like, you know, we have some tools in the federal government that could help. And I know, I think it's David Ciceline out of, I believe he's out of New Jersey, has proposed multiple times his part of the Equality Act and it gets so far and then it gets shot down right now I mean, shot down in, in the Senate. So, you know, I think that that's something that, you know, we, we really need to take a hard look at. Um, and I don't know, I mean, this is something where we need to say to the Justice Department, you know, literally children's lives are in danger. What are you going to do about it? Because I mean, that's, that's really how I'm starting to feel about it is it mm -hmm. just seems to increase. Mm -hmm. And I think thing, there are so many ways in our society that things are changing for the better. You know, I remember myself as being a closeted queer teenager and having so few spaces where I could talk about it. And, you know, now seeing, you know, teens around me being open and fluid with their sexuality and their gender is just like a really incredible thing to see. When I was younger, gay people could not marry each other. We had this big debate over civil unions, you know, that we're, we've taken so many steps. What this is, is an attempt towards a step backwards. But I think, you know, I think at this point, the more that we're talking about it, the more um, queer people and transgender people that people meet in their own community, you know, I, I like to maintain hope that it makes these cells a lot harder from these politicians who are looking to roll back their rights. Everybody, you know, knows somebody who's queer now. And that's, that's a really lovely thing. And so I like to think that there will be continued to be backlash on this and a lot of, you know, horror shared. And, you know, like you said, with the transgender bathroom bills, recognizing that it's absolute nonsense and no one was ever been harassed by a transgender oh, bathroom. Oh, my in goodness. A bathroom. No, and in fact, you know, these things you don't know, even make sense to people. In fact, you know, and, and you've probably seen this too, working with teenagers, I'm more concerned about transgender young people and the harassment they'll get they'll suffer, when absolutely. they go into bathrooms, you know? Yeah. So that's that's really when I think about that issue and, and think about young people's experiences. And I'm just like, no, no, this is, this is not a reality. This is completely fabricated. Yeah, we, we really need to, to take a different look at that. But thank you for asking these questions, Amber. Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. One thing that I thought about while you all having this discussion was we need to make sure that we're putting in place that these things are public health crises. When there are bills mm -hmm. being passed mm -hmm. or bills that are being introduced yes. that can lead to violations of someone's civil or human rights, which ultimately can lead to a hate crime yes. against a marginalized group, we have to make it the forefront of our education in public health and in medicine to say, this is not what we want to see going forward. It puts our patients' lives at you know, in jeopardy. Mm -hmm. you, if you look at the statistics on the amount of transgender people that have probably died as the result of a hate crime of some sort, 
it, it, it's probably insanely astronomically large in terms of the number of people that have been either harmed or murdered by someone that is a cisgender individual. And I think that creating a space where we say, this is a public health crisis and this is something that needs to be dealt with in the future moving forward, I think that we will find ourselves in a better place. But it is a public health crisis. And I do think that there are organizations, um, you know, I'm part of the LGBTQ um, caucus through the American Public Health Association, right? So there are places that are really in the public health professional sphere that are really holding this up as the crisis that it is. And also holding up, because this is another area that we haven't even begun to touch, is just the need for um, documentation and research what's happening in people's lives. And so oftentimes this information doesn't even get recorded properly. It doesn't get to the places it needs to get. I remember when I first started working with a youth program out here and I had well-meaning good people say to me, well, are there really that many kids that really need this kind of service? You know, and this wasn't a long time ago, okay, so this is the last, you know, 10 years that, that this question was being asked. And it's like, yes, you know, even in areas, I mean, I live in inland Southern California, which is more conservative than even though we're within the Los Angeles area, but right. it is much more conservative an area. And it was very difficult to talk with people in groups to say, yes, these young people are here, and yes, we need services. I'm a big believer in narratives, you know, as really getting people's stories told by them Mm -hmm. out there. There are some great transgender youth organizations now, and that's part, that's, they feel that that's part of their mission, because we all know some of the horrible things that have happened to transgender people, but these are young people, and they're like, hey, we have lives and our lives value and we can have a great life as well mm-hmm. if people acknowledge the, the richness of who we are. You know, that's significant. We really need to continue to remember that. Mm-hmm. And that is, you know, to be honest with you, that space is relatively new, right? Because I, you know, I remember, I mean, when I was in high school, I just knew I was different. That's what I walked around with, just being different. I didn't have a language for it because in my Mm -hmm. family and my community, there was really wasn't a language for who I was and what I was about. And it wasn't until I was in college and a lot older that I had the space to be who I was and to acknowledge that. And I think that we have to create a space for people and ensure that that space remains rather than, oh, we're going to create a space, but just kidding, we're going to take that back from you all. And I think that that's a lot of what we've been doing in the past hundred years or so, where we say, okay, we're going to give them, you know, or give people these rights, but no, we're going to nullify those because our thought processes have not changed from a political standpoint. And from just a lot of the people I feel like that are operating and passing these bills, a lot of them are baby boomers. And one of the things that I've learned is that they are a really, really hard group to generation rather 
to break the mold in terms of some of the stigmas that they think about and teaching them about what is what are our new things that we are practicing, such as pronouns. I know a couple of friends, their parents, they'll watch things that you know feature LGBTQ people and the, the, the father will say, well, what is that? I don't know what that is. And you know the child has to correct them and say, hey, that's not a he that is, you know, they refer to themselves as they or them. And I think that we have to really continue to educate these people and the generational gaps that we're seeing, you know, more individuals that are accepting in the, in the generations thereafter come into medicine and come into politics and various other things. I think that we may see a lot of social change because there is more of an open world Mm -hmm. that's accepting of differences in terms of people and the uniqueness that people possess. Mm-hmm. And I think that once we get to that point, I think that there'll be a major, major turning point in the way that we see people and the way that we are able to ensure that their health is at its utmost quality. As we finalize this topic, I think I feel like we could talk about this forever because it's such a pertinent topic that needs to be discussed and that needs to have a voice inside the classrooms, outside of the classrooms, in our social spaces, everywhere. I think that it's really important that we find ways to mitigate these gaps in LGBTQ care, especially as it relates to sexual health. Dr. Delenn, I want to call you out here because you practice as gynecology and family planning physician and just seeing (laughs) patients on a regular that their, their sexual health as LGBTQ individuals may be at risk because they are so afraid to speak to a physician. They are afraid to be in a physician's office because of maybe trauma that may have been experienced previously, or that may have been ingrained in their brains by their family members or by other individuals. How do you think we can mitigate these things moving forward? Well, I mean, I, I feel proud to work in an organization that just provides the access. You know, I think what we do in our practices, we provide transgender affirming care, we provide HIV testing, we provide things like HEP and PrEP, which is uh, HIV prevention tools. So I think just being, you know, and I also train physicians so who are doctors in training, and I train doctors, you know, to also provide these services. And I think that's the next step. And what you said earlier about better than the prior generation, but there's so much that younger people are teaching me. So I let my patients teach me. I mean, even five years ago, I wasn't introducing myself using my pronouns. And now I know what that means to people and how that helps. And so I try to do my best to continue to remain open to listen to what people who outside of my experience go through. And I think that's true in the practice of medicine in general and in in the public health that you practice is, is you're not going to be able to help people if you don't listen. And so I think that, you know, that's what I, I try to do and I try to train other doctors to do. Yeah, thank you for thank you for doing that. First of all, because um, I've been on the other end of care mm-hmm. um, in places where it's always appreciated when a provider is basically respectful of your being. And I just wanted to say something as someone who is at the end of that baby boom, right? And I think one of the things that I continually remember is that as baby boomers, we were real groundbreakers for the generations that mm-hmm. were ahead of us. And I think that that is critical that we remember that because I think your comments, Amber, are, are, are actually well taken. I think that 
it's critical that we listen to people that are younger and to their perspectives. And most importantly, the, the creativity that gets brought into the process. I agree with you, Dr. Dillon. I learn so much from people that are younger than me in terms of how they view the world. I mean, when I came out, you know, we had maybe a couple options, right? You were gay or lesbian and there was nothing in between, right? And now I feel like young queer folk have broken through all of these really deeply held societal issues around gender and sexuality and the spectrum of sexuality, which, Mm -hmm. you know, as someone who is a sexuality educator, I so appreciate that because that's the reality of all of us, regardless of your, you know, what label you put on your sexual orientation or gender expression. And I think that they've pushed all of us, even if we're uncomfortable with it. Into binaries. And who, yes, I mean, Mm -hmm. they've really, they've really pushed us beyond. And I think that that's really beautiful. And, and it's a gift they bring to not only us currently, but to future generations. Absolutely. There's a lot of breadth in what you said in terms of how we can move forward and what we can be doing to ensure that people for the next generations and those to come don't have to deal with some of the plight that the previous generations had to deal with, especially in terms of the HIV AIDS epidemic, people feeling like they can't say their pronouns or you cannot say gay. Being transgender is a problem in some states or some individuals' minds. I think that when we really get to the root of it is that we're here to help people, not hurt them. If we really focus on the fact that we're here to do no harm, then that is where we get a lot of what we need in terms of doing what we need to be doing in our jobs, politics and public health and medicine, that it's not about us, that it's about the people that we're serving. And once we get to that point where it's about the service of the individuals rather than whatever your moral beliefs are, then I think that we will start to make more headway in terms of where we're going in the future. And I wholeheartedly appreciate you all for being here, for speaking your truths, for being advocates in this space, because it's so needed for individuals that feel like they can't speak their truths or can't be outside of this this perpetual closet that they're in. So I think that it's very important that we continue to do the work and educate individuals in these spaces, especially um, young adults as they move forward, because it's a difficult time going through adolescence. People are constantly telling them, oh, it's just a phase, you'll grow out of it. And for people, that's not a phase. It's their lives. And we have to stop saying, oh, you know, it's just like a phase, like if you dye your hair red. That's not, you know, that's a phase. Being gay is not a phase. So we have to get out of this mindset that it is, oh, it's just, it's just a moment in time, you'll get over it. And people constantly try and push themselves to get over it. And it creates mental anguish and trauma moving forward. And they don't feel like they can be open with their truth and open in their lives. So I think that we just have to just do better as individuals and stop being so judgmental. So to the audience today, we really, really appreciate it. Well, thank you for, thank you for hosting this. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) Yeah, I'm good. Thank you for uh, having the conversation. We appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. I'm sure there will be a part two because there's so much.
There's a wealth yeah. of information in this space that I feel like really needs to be talked about. And if we had all the time in the world, we probably could get a lot of the yes. information out there. But the audience, thank you all so much for listening today. And I really hope that you all have learned something that you can take in your daily lives and in you know your job spaces, whether you're in public health, medicine, politics, et cetera. Please make sure that you're doing your due diligence to do no harm and that you're being more accepting of individuals and asking them what they want rather than speaking whatever your truth is for them. Asking people their pronouns is a great place to start. Ensuring that people feel comfortable with the names that they are assigning themselves at this point in time in their lives. So please, please be safe, be kind, and be conscientious of the things that we're doing, especially in terms of individuals that are in LGBTQ communities and marginalized communities. So thank you all so much for listening and take care, stay safe, and stay well.